Peter. And um, normally at the extras, what we do is we tackle questions that you send in on the Sunday, just then at church. And this Sunday that's just gone by, we looked at magnification in the Carlingford site and ministry in the North Rock site. So um, we're going to tackle some the questions that have come in have all been about magnification. And Peter, who better to answer it than our magnification pastor? That's right. Here we go. <laughs> so Peter, can you tell us a little bit about what does it mean to uh, magnification? Like, what is all that about? That's kind of what you covered. And what passage did you look at? What was kind of the main take-home message from that? Yeah, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, what is magnification again? Because we've all probably heard explanations and, um, you know, maybe been left scratching our heads a little bit, still wondering, well, I'm still not quite sure. So my sort of shorthand for it is that magnification is what happens when the gospel gets a hold on our hearts. You know, when we hear that good news about uh, who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Mm. And it goes to work on our hearts so that in response to God's love for us, we love God. We delight in him. We worship him. We seek to glorify him in what we do. And we spend a bit of time looking at Psalm 84 because this is just uh, one example in the Bible of where clearly someone is, is captivated by who God is and has captivated this psalmist's heart and uh, we can see how his actions, the things that he does, uh, flow out of this desire that he has uh, for God in response to who God is. Amazing. And what a great choice. Psalm 84. It's a beautiful psalm. Mm. It's, um, I think I remember one of the things you said in the sermon was kind of, you know, looking at a picture in a travel agency and going, this is where I want to be, you know, place I'd rather be in. And the psalm is, is, is trying to evoke that feeling and that thinking in us of, the place where God is, is where we want to be and Mm. trying to align our hearts to think and feel and know that for ourselves. So thank you for working so hard to prepare. I mean, as an aside, I want to also know, um, obviously I haven't prepared Peter for this, but I'm going to ask anyway, what's your sermon preparation process like? So as you look at Psalm 84, what normally happens as you prepare? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, it starts with uh, you know, praying for God's help um, to to understand uh, understand the words and how it fits together, and um, really to uh, I take it on for myself. It's an important thing, you know. Uh, before you know, you can you can speak about the Bible to somebody else. You have to uh, allow the Bible to speak to you. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, and then uh, reading, uh, reading, 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 reading. Praying, 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 reading, reading, mm. reading, um, and uh, you know, particularly with a, a psalm, um, yeah, a big part of the process is uh, just to uh, figure out, you know, how do the little parts of each line relate to one another? Is it is a, is a picture being built up, um, and how do those lines connect? to each other are there kind of chunks stanzas maybe Mm. Um, so just really going to work hard on the on the the text trying to understand how it fits together but especially for a psalm you know i really want to know like what sort of an emotional journey are we on and so i try to uh trying especially this time to dial into the kinds of words that express um feelings and longings on behalf of the uh, the the psalmist and kind of saying, you know, not only what kind of facts am I learning here, but what's the, 
you know, what's the emotional valence of those facts? Mm. Um, and to understand where, uh, where the kind of author is and where he's going, what kind of journey there is, and to then kind of reflect on, you know, in what sense, in what sense is that or might that be uh, my journey? Um, obviously a big part of that for some is that, that recognizing that this is part of uh, Israel's scripture, the Old Testament, and so I don't come at it directly. Um, I don't belong in this psalm myself as a, as a Gentile. This is an Israelite psalm. Um, but I belong at it if I'm in Christ. And if in Christ I've been grafted into Israel, I belong to the hope of Israel as well. And so just understanding how in Christ I can lay a hold on these words, not directly, but in him. Hmm. Thank you, Peter. I want to ask about that because I think, um, so we as a staff team, we meet sort of um, um, to talk about some stuff, you know, every week. And then on the Tuesday we met just then, we read the psalm together as well. And um, Peter also led us through some of his thinking about that. And I was really struck by the insight that you had in the passage and the the kind of difficult questions that I had about the passage that you were able to answer. So I just thought it was good to get an insight on your preparation process. And thank you so much for pastoring us and spending the effort in the word. So hopefully, you know, for all of our listeners and even for myself, it's good to just get an insight into all the preparation that happens before on a Sunday. Um, you know, the, the kind of um, effort you put into applying this for yourself and understanding how this applies to us, what it's saying and what it's doing. So I really appreciate that. So thank you, Peter. Well, I um, should so, say it's, you know, it's such a, a privilege, yeah. you know, that, that part of my work is to be able to spend lots of time in God's word and reading, 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 and then trying to share it with the, the family of God. And um, I guess, I think I encouraged at a number of services on Sunday, but um, there's just so, it's such a wonderful psalm. There's so much good stuff in here. So let me encourage you, you know, if you do, anytime you have, you can spend on it if you spend time pressing into the words and really pouring over them. You, you'll benefit from that too um, because there's just so much in there, much more than I was able to share on the weekend. Uh, let me really encourage you for yourself. Yeah, just pray and read and pray and read and, and, and uh, you know suck the marrow out of these wonderful passages. We're going to dive into the first question we have from our congregations, which is about a specific detail in the passage. So in the passage, uh, it talks about in verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So what are they referring to in terms of the tents of the wicked? What's that all about? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So obviously it's setting up a, a contrast there. There's the, the house of my God. Um, and the tents of the wicked. And this is often how um, Hebrew poetry works, that you have two lines that are sort of matched to one another, but they have contrasting elements in them. So here we've got um, the contrasting elements, uh, doorkeeper versus dwell. Those are two different ways of being present in a place, um, sort of doing a job, I guess, on the, on the, the fringes in some sense as, as a doorkeeper. Uh, and then house of my God versus tents of the wicked. So that kind of contrasting picture is being set up there. And that's the main thing to notice. Not so much who exactly are the wicked and where they pitch their tents, but this contrasting picture um, set over against um, the idea of dwelling in God's presence. 
And perhaps it's helpful here to dial back to Psalm 1. Uh, really, the Psalms, um, we can kind of think of them as just a bit of a ragbag collection of lots and lots of different sort of little poems. Um, and in a sense, that's true. There's not a storyline in, in Psalms as such. It's not a narrative. But uh, it is a book that's been quite carefully put together and does have a kind of a cohesive overall perspective. And we um, get introduced to that perspective in the very first psalm. That's why it's the first psalm, because it uh, helps us to understand um, the, the, the worldview, the, the picture um, that we are being brought into as we read the psalms. And uh, the thing we meet in the very first psalm is we hear, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. And we get this contrasting picture there are uh, the blessed ones and the wicked. The blessed, the, the, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, verse 2, Psalm 1. Um, this person is blessed. Whatever they do prospers. We read verse 4, not so the wicked. Uh, there's the blessed righteous ones and then there's the wicked. Yeah, um, which is the same word we get, right, in Psalm 84 about the, t- the tents of the wicked. Yeah, yeah that's right. And so we, these are actually... Uh, characters that we've kind of met before the blessed or righteous um or the righteous who are blessed and then the wicked and we meet them again here in psalm 84 there's blessed ones the ones who are close to the lord who delight in his presence uh compared to the ones who want nothing to do with the lord they're the scoffers the mockers the sinners the wicked they want nothing to do with the lord and so that's the contrasting set there and better to take um even just a marginal role somewhere near to god than to have the security of dwelling uh, with those who reject God. And, and that's, that's really the picture here and why the tents of the wicked are mentioned. Thank you, Peter. We're going to move to a second que- uh, question also about a detail in the passage, which you have highlighted about pilgrimage, that, that this is about a journey. This person is taking a journey into God's house, even though it seems like they're not in God's house at the moment, you know. Um, they're thinking, they're fainting for it, they're yearning for it in verse 2. Mm. What about the role of physical pilgrimage in today's age? What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I'm glad somebody asked it. Um, in a sense, you know, we just touched on talking about how uh, as Christian people, we read the Psalms as Christian scripture, part of our Old Testament. Uh, but uh, we don't read them as if we have a direct place in them. They are uh, Israelite psalms that we um, have uh, in Jesus, but not because we ourselves are Israelites. Uh, we have them because Jesus fulfills Israel's scriptures and you know, as us as Gentiles, non-Israelites, uh, welcomes us into those promises which are first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so we have to recognize that uh, God's salvation plan is in a different stage here in the psalm than it is for us. So at this time, God dwells graciously with his people in the temple in Mm. Jerusalem, in a literal physical building. At the fulfillment of God's salvation plan, God dwells with his people literally physically in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in our place in the Lord's salvation plan, the Lord dwells with us by his spirit as he lives in us uh, and we wait for the new heavens and the new earth when we'll the dwelling place of god will be with men as we read in revelation so to summarize in the old testament 
Jerusalem, the temple. In the New Testament, we see the person of Jesus as the Spirit has been given to us. God dwells in us by His Spirit. And the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus will be the Son that we and we don't need the Son anymore because He's going to be face to face with us. Yeah, that's right. So we need to understand when we read Psalm 84, where are we up to in God's unfolding salvation plan? And it's not the same as the place that we are in now. So to be near God when God dwells physically uh, in a building, now we should say it's clear even in the Old Testament, God doesn't live in the building. You know, Solomon yeah, says, not, yeah. you know, the highest heavens can't contain you. How could you live in a building? Hmm. Uh, but God sort of, um, you know, sort of, I suppose, symbolically makes his presence dwell. Yeah, and he says that this, this is where my name dwells. This is where, you know, I'm with my, but he talks about, you know, his presence being there. That's right. And so if you want to get to God's presence, you've got to walk there if you don't live in Jerusalem. That's you, right. There's actually a physical um, a thing that people have to do, especially you think of the Passover where where God is told, this is where I have placed my name. This is um, the place that I have chosen and there to come, right? Which we see in the Old Testament was um, Jeroboam's sin in making that making those places in the northern um, part of New South Wales. Uh, not in New South Wales, I'm going crazy. <laughs> so yeah, there you go, New South Wales. It's the baby brain, everybody. It's kicking in. Um, but the, the that northern really would part... would be a heresy, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would yeah. be. The northern parts of Israel, that was yeah. a part of the problem. He prevented people from going back to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so that's what faith looks like at that time, you know, making a physical pilgrimage to a physical place. But that's not what we're doing now because yeah. Jesus has fulfilled the temple. He's dwelt with his people and Jesus dwells with us by his spirit. So should we, you know, maybe we all need to go to Israel. So we don't need to do that anymore or go to Israel. No, I mean, that's not the shape yeah. of Christian faith. Being close to God, uh, we don't need to get up and walk anywhere. Uh, the Lord is with us by the power of his spirit. And so uh, that's an, an important difference. Um, now, it's worth saying that, that uh, pilgrimage has been a part of the Christian tradition at different times. Um, so uh, you might think of kind of, there's been famous uh, pilgrimage sites, particularly in uh, in Europe, uh, uh, Lourdes or um, uh, Santiago de Compostela and, and the Pilgrim Way and that kind of stuff. Um, but Yeah, I feel like, Peter, you would know a lot more than me because I've never been to Europe, but you've lived in the UK. I'm sure there was like places close closer by, you know, that you could... Uh, sure. Well, in Durham, yeah. where I live, this was a pilgrimage site. Yeah. Uh, and people go. would travel there to um, be near the, the, the relics of St. Cuthbert, this particular yeah. um, medieval holy man. And uh, Christian pilgrimage... Um, in, in, in the tradition has focused on saints and, yeah. and their relics. And so people traveling to places uh, to be near those uh, dead body parts of, of, of holy folk. Just to say also, where I come from in China, where my dad's kind of hometown is, is very famous as a pilgrimage site mm. for a very famous disciple of Buddha whose supposed remains are there. So one of the big things that happen is also pilgrimage on that level in, in another yeah. Yeah. Religion, but anyway, and I and I think that we have to say that pilgrimage, in the sense of traveling to be near um, a saint's relics, um, is really at best, at best, a distraction um, from genuine Christian faith, genuinely delighting in and enjoying the presence of God by the Spirit, uh, and at worst, uh, really a kind of idolatry uh, where people are directing uh, to created people the worship that belongs only to god um so for that reason you know i 
I think that Christian that, that physical pilgrimage isn't and and oughtn't to be a part of our Christian faith. Now, mm. this is not to say that things like uh, traveling to Jerusalem might not be uh, a good idea, uh, but not because this is uh, a holy land, although some people call it that. Not because God's presence is really to be felt there in a way it's not to be felt other places, uh, but just because the Bible um, comes to us. Uh, with a lot of history in it, we can better appreciate that if we go to where some of that history happened. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't want to say there's there's no potential spiritual benefit to uh, travel in some instances, uh, but um, the Christian tradition of pilgrimage is is a, is a problematic one for those reasons. Uh, and um, theologically, we want to say, well, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you are in the Lord's presence right now. And you are uh, on a journey towards uh, the new heavens and the new earth. You can't walk there, but it'll come to you when the Lord Jesus returns. Thank you, Peter. That's very helpful. It does come down to the question of why you're doing something, you know, and for a lot of these kind of practices, traditionally, the why has been in terms of earning merit and in terms of trying to get this sort of extraordinary experience that you wouldn't otherwise have by faith in Jesus. So mm. that's that's quite problematic, isn't it? When it negates the promises of the Bible, of what we receive only purely through Jesus. Um, so we're going to move now to maybe thinking a little bit about applying um, Psalm 84 and thinking through in terms of application for our doctrine, our way of thinking. So we've got a question here about the relationship between magnifying or delighting in God and faith. Mm. So, I, Peter, you were talking about magnification is when the gospel has a grip on our hearts and sets our hearts on fire. But what about faith? Are you saying like that happens before we trust in Jesus? Are you saying that happens after we trust in Jesus? Where does faith fit into all of that? Yeah, it's helpful. So I talked a little bit about the life of faith and about magnification being at the at the heart of the life of faith, uh, but I think it's helpful to have the chance to kind of reflect with a little bit of um, theological precision about how do faith and uh, what we might call affections, uh, mm. so uh, our heart being stirred, your desires, longings, uh, emotions, but more than emotions, the drive that we feel to do things. Um, how does affection and faith fit together? And, you know, I think that actually um, the theologian John Calvin is really helpful here. So John Calvin is a theologian, um, French guy, working in Switzerland in the 16th century. Uh, And John Calvin really helpfully um, spent some time talking about what is faith. Uh, And he points out that uh, godly affections, so the stirrings of our heart um, to desire, to please God, to obey him... um, and to delight in him. This isn't actually something that comes uh, after faith. It's actually an integral part of faith itself. Um, So Calvin says, faith is knowledge, knowing God's promises, but it's knowledge that doesn't just touch your mind. It's knowledge that touches your heart as well. I'm going to read the quote because I think it's a really brilliant one. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. That's God's goodness and kindness. A firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded on the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Both revealed to the mind and sealed on the heart. Faith is knowing God's goodness with your head and knowing it with your heart as it comes to you in the Word. 
Uh, he's got this other great quote as well. Um, if you'll indulge me with a second Calvin mm. quote, he says, uh, the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart. And I just like that very kind of direct uh, faith involves knowledge. Of course, of course, it's knowing what God has done, but it's not a knowing that you just know. It's a knowledge that, that touches the heart. Faith is knowledge that touches both the mind and the heart. Yeah. See, I think that that makes me think of the passage in James, right, where it talks about even the devil knows God mm. and shudders. It's the, the kind of faith that doesn't impact action. And um, we see that James contrasts that with the faith that results in works and that that being actually a mark of genuine faith. Um, and so, yeah, and, and we see that if it if it, it's not just sort of fleeting about in our mind, as Calvin says, but actually takes root in our heart and leads to changes in our lives. Yeah, yeah I think that's really helpful uh, that James speaks about, yeah, a, a, a faith without works is dead. And of course, he doesn't mean we're saved by our works. He means that uh, a saving faith results in works. Yeah. Um, the uh, But what goes between uh, knowing and understanding, like the demons do, uh, and doing activities that please God, is actually the affections. All of our action arises out of affection, uh, whether positive or negative, whether we desire something and we, see t- we take actions to obtain it, or whether we... Uh, we, we don't like something, we despise something, we take actions to avoid or get rid of it. Uh, if we are going to be living in a practical, active way for Jesus, then we'll be doing that because actually our hearts have been stirred to desire, to please him, to want what he wants for us. So Christian activity flows from godly affections. Um now, moving on to sort of someone else's question, which I think is linked to this and, and a, a part of applying this in terms of thinking about our doctrine. What do you say then about, so you've talked a bit about our hearts and, and our affection. So does this mean that magnification is about the heart and say something like maturity is about the head? No. <laughs> Why not? No, it doesn't. I mean, a tiny bit, maybe that's a, like a very rough rule of thumb, uh, but no, no, it doesn't. Um. Now, it's worth saying that uh, the five M's, there's tons of overlap. If you're somebody who likes things to be very neatly delineated, uh, sorry. Yeah, this isn't going to work out that way. The five M's are not like that. They overlap heaps. Because, of course, if you're a mature Christian, you want to be on mission, right? Mission and maturity are not two separate things. Uh, So there's lots of overlap. Um, And similarly, there's lots of overlap between maturity and magnification, right? So there's no uh, magnification without the head. And there's no magnification without understanding and knowing God's truth as revealed in the Bible. I mean, heart action without truth is just idolatry. But of course, what we do in, obe- in, in, in maturity uh, as we are reading God's word with an obedient spirit, listening to what the Lord says and desiring to meet him and learn his will so we can do his will, uh, growing deep in prayer, uh, this is worship. This is the heart is involved in it. That's not just the head. And so maturity is full of the heart. Magnification is full of the head. Uh, these things, they can't be split apart as if one's in one department, one's in the other. Huge overlap, both head and heart, in both maturity and magnification. 
But what if I am someone, so think about applying this doctrine now into our lives. What if um, I'm someone that's just emotionally detached or not as emotional in general? Yeah, I think... Like, how do, yeah, how do we think about it if we're told, hey, you know, a part of loving God and, like, following Him is having genuine affection. But you're like, well, I don't genuinely feel a lot of affection for a lot of things, maybe. Or, yeah, how does that work? I'm just so glad that this question got asked. I really genuinely am. Um, because I think that many of us can find talk about um, the emotional dimensions of faith, um or when we perhaps we see someone who's clearly having a very intense feelings uh, about Yeah, we see Jesus. someone crying as they're singing whilst we're thinking about what's on for dinner or like we're not feeling yeah. that. Yeah. We can find that uh, perhaps unsettling uh, or even we can take that as, as kind of um, threatening to us. We can think, well, is that what it looks like to be really a Christian? Because I'm not like that. Mm. Uh, and that's why I'm so pleased this question got asked because um, that really uh, is... is uh, you know, totally understandable that we wonder that, and I've certainly wondered that myself. Um, but I think it's important to say that uh, it's not like saying a real Christian is always just gushing with emotion on a big emotional high, uh, and if you're not feeling that way, perhaps you're not a real Christian. Like We definitely don't want to say that. Now, Kenny, I wonder what you would say. Like, Are you somebody who... Um, feels things very deeply who often like your you know emotional life is very uh vivid and um high highs and low lows oh i feel like this has changed throughout my life i probably was a bit more like that when i was younger i think as i've gotten older that's changed um i think i'm not someone i think that have a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows i tend to be pretty steady yeah um so yeah i i don't think uh, but I think I am quite an emotional person still, but mm. I tend to be pretty steady, generally speaking. I mean, I was just saying to Peter, I'm a bit ho- more hormonal now that I'm pregnant. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, hey, like, I'm, I'm like a bit more like, you know, just, you know how you like get easily teary and stuff. I don't know if any of the listeners have ever been pregnant, which, you know, maybe a bunch of you have not probably, but yeah. It's, I have but I can imagine. <laughs> You might have seen when Pamela, I don't know if that Pamela ever went. That's not maybe something we discuss in the podcast. But anyway, so yes. Um, but, you know, emotions can be affected by a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because, you know, God made us, um, we could say, body and soul. Like we are, uh, we're, we're, we're phys- our physicality, our bodies are an important part of it. So our bodies play into it. You know, yeah. your emotions can be affected by what you had for lunch. Or if you have chronic pain, like even that, that would change things a lot. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so part of what I want to say is just, you know, everybody's emotional landscape looks a bit different, I reckon. So I think like you, Candy, I would say that I'm not somebody who experiences um, lots of extremely uh, vivid emotions. I don't consider myself an emotionless person, uh, but I don't think, you know, sharp high highs and low lows is really kind of, that's not exactly me. And so I think what each of us need to say is, you know, what does godliness in my affections look like for me as the person I am, as the person God made me? Now, that might look different to, you know, somebody else. My uh, godly emotion for me might not look the same as it does for you, Candy, and it might not look the same as it does uh, for another person. It might be helpful... um, to use different language than emotions, you would say, I'm not an emotional person. But 
you know, if all of our activities spurred by, say, our our desires, our you know, motivations, think about well, what do you want? Not so much how do you feel about Jesus. You might think, well, I don't really know. But you think, well, what do I what do I want in my life? What are the things that I'm I'm after? That's such a huge question, Peter. It's a very big question. What do I want in life? Yeah. Which I think is a very good question. I was just saying it's a huge question because I think that is quite determinative of the habits that we end up accumulating, mm. um, what we end up spending our money on, the things that occupied our thinking and our speech. You know, if I really, for example, I'm, I could just think of, um, uh, yeah, thinking through, you know, um, I might want to be comfortable, so I might, might just want to stay at home in my pajamas, you know, on a Sunday morning. But I might also want to be listening to God and honoring Him in what He tells us He wants us to do with His people. And so I might think, of, yeah. So, so you sort of think, what do you actually want in life? And that becomes determinative of the decisions that you make. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so I think you're right. It is a big question. But it's, uh, I think it's worth developing some sort of self-awareness around this. Like, what are the things that stir my heart? Not to highs of emotion, but to, you know, my kind of basic drives and motivations and longings. And ask, how is the gospel shaping those things? So, are the things I want materially shaped and impacted by who the Bible shows me God is and what he's done for me? Or am my motivations kind of a little bit untouched by that, running on a parallel track? I think that might be a helpful sort of way in to start thinking. You know, even if I'm an emotionally detached person, I consider myself not to have vivid emotions. What about my kind of basic uh, underlying motives, drives, longings? Because as long as we live, there is already an answer to those things. We might not be we might not be aware of what our answer is, but we definitely have an answer. That's right. If unless you're sort of lying catatonic, you, know, <laughs> you, you have drives yeah, to, yeah, well, and it's probably it's worth saying yeah. at this point that you know things like depression can take us near to that kind of emotional paralysis. Yeah. And if you know you're in a place like that, um, I would encourage you to seek help for that, and there is help available mm. for that kind of thing. So. Um, Particularly if, you know, your emotional life is, is difficult and something is actually badly off, so you're having trouble feeling things, um, having trouble having any kind of desire or motivation at all, um, do do seek help for that. And there, there is help, even if it feels like, well, how could there ever be help? I mean, there is. Um, but, you know, to kind of take a step back from that kind of uh, extreme case of, uh, you know, kind of medically feeling, oh, well, I have no emotions, um, just being aware of, yeah, what are my desires that are motivating my actions? How does the gospel change those things? And, and, and I think praying about it, you know, God, help me to understand what it is that drives me and help me to be driven by what you want for me. You know, make that a part of your prayer life. That's very helpful. A big question, I think, for all of us to consider, what do we want in life? What does our life reflect um, as, as the answer to that? us and thinking through is that actually driven by the gospel as a step back just to think about feelings isn't it yeah mm. um our last question here is about in particular applying psalm 84 applying what we've been learning about magnification in the space of growth group what do you think we can do to involve magnification in our growth groups yeah what a great question i'm really pleased that somebody 
ask this, uh, and I want to throw it back to you. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> well, to, to you, listener, but you can answer too, Candy. Oh, okay, I'll say, oh, um, yeah. Ask your growth group this week. Just turn up to growth group and when you're having a cup of tea before you sit down and read the Bible, just say, hey, you know, I've, I've become convinced that magnifying God is important. I'd love to do a little bit with our group. What could we do? Um, you know, and just, just throw it open to conversation and see what your bunch is up to um, or what they might like to get up to. I mean, here are like a couple of thoughts off the top of my head. Uh, make uh, Make prayer time more than the thing you ought to do at the end that you kind of rush in. Um, so don't skip prayer time. Um, and, you know, take a minute to pray, uh, you know, pray for one another's needs. That's important. But pray in response to the passage. Spend a, a little bit of time just, you know, thanking God for what is revealed of himself, um, praying for the things uh, that God has shown you in the passage to really take root in your heart. Um, spend a good bit of time doing that and, and then move on to you know your needs it's good to bring your needs to god but um also spend time praying the word into your heart um i'll say this as well sing a song together now i know you're thinking oh my goodness get real uh i promise you it will be weird i promise you it will be good try it try it sing a song together just agree a simple easy one something that everybody knows you know in christ alone something like that look up the words on your phone and just have a little bit of a go. Maybe someone in your group is uh, musical. Maybe not. Maybe you just kind of scratch it out and it's uh, it's a bit rubbish, but it will be great. Um, don't think that that is something you, you know, could never do or it'd be too weird or too lame. It'll be a bit weird, but uh, give it a go. If you feel like singing a song, you know, throw it out there and, and try. Thank you, Peter. Um, I think that's all really the questions that we have from you guys, uh, the listeners and the people at church, thank you so much for sending them in. This coming week, we'll be looking at ministry with um, Sam Russell. So he's going to be preaching through that. And um, we're excited to be thinking through God's purpose for us as a church and for us as his people in serving one another. Um, thank you, Peter. It's been really helpful. I want to leave all of us with the question of what do I want in life? As maybe think back to the past week, uh, maybe you're not self-aware at the moment of what that is for you, but think back to the last week and maybe even have a look at um, your, think of think through the words that you've said, think through what you've scheduled in, think through what has taken priority and what that reflects about what you want in life and um, where does the gospel come into that? I think it's a very good reflective exercise. So thank you, Peter, for pointing us to that. And I look forward to chatting with you guys again and with our speaker next week. See you later. Bye, everyone.